Conventional wisdom says that most organizations and companies should assume they're victims of a data breach, but just don't know. Experts agree that companies are generally caught off guard when a breach is suspected. Hackers are becoming more aggressive, stealing data and threatening companies to release it publicly if a ransom isn't paid. The computer security and forensics firm FireEye often has an inside view of these struggles. I'm Jeremy Kirk with Information Security Media Group. I'm speaking today with Charles Carmichael, who is the Vice President of FireEye's Mandiant Unit. Charles, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Mandiant published a report earlier this year that touched on many of the common issues that are noticed during so-called disruptive breaches. Can you tell me what is considered a disruptive breach or attack? Yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. So most breaches in general are disruptive in some nature. So threat actors steal data or maybe they they deface a website and it causes organizations to have to conduct investigations or mediations. But but really what we're talking about here from a disruptive perspective is where we see threat actors deliberately taking businesses offline just to embarrass the organization or to try to make some money out of it. Or they steal data and they try to extort the organization to try to make some money. So uh, over the past 12 months, the FireEye organization has responded to more disruptive breaches at organizations than we've ever done in the past 12 years. And so one of the struggles that companies have when they suspect that there is a breach is actually confirming there is a breach. Can you tell me some of the steps that companies need to sort of think about if they suspect something's happening and it's kind of a time critical thing, uh, how quickly they find out if they've actually been breached? Yeah, so as, as we all know, breaches make the headlines all the time. Organizations are, they, they understand that the threat is real. And, and because of that, threat actors and scammers alike, they, they do very similar things when they try to taunt organizations. And so real threat actors, when they break into organizations, in general, they prove that they have access to either certain information in the organization or they prove that they have the capability of doing something. So for example, uh, or organizations that uh, conduct uh, distributed denial of service attacks generally tend to actually produce a, a demo attack against an organization. You know, they'll take them offline for about an hour to prove that they have the capacity to, to actually take them offline. Whereas uh, scammers, they tend to not actually prove that they can do what they say they can do. And, and it's, it's really tricky for an organization to, to be able to tell the, you know, the difference between a real threat actor and a, a scammer that's just trying to make money. It's, it's really important for the, uh, the victim to try to validate that the threat actor either has access to data that they claim they have access to, and usually they'll, they'll prove that they have access to it by actually showing evidence of data that was stolen from the organization, um, whereas, again, the, the scammers may not actually have the ability to prove that they have access to data. So when a company's in a situation, we'll say that Company X has figured out that they actually have been breached and the attacker has what he claims he has or she. So what's the next step then as far as engaging an attacker and deciding what to do? you got to remember that you're dealing with a human adversary. So your action or your inaction is going to cause some kind of reaction by the attacker. There could be an emotional response based on you not responding or an emotional response based on you responding in a very maybe condescending or antagonistic way. So you got to be very careful and you got to script out um, how you actually going to engage with the threat actor, and you got to understand what are the objectives of actually communicating with uh, with the threat actor. Sometimes we find that victims will engage with the intention of delaying the threat actor so that the victim organization can investigate how do the bad guys actually break in, and then um, they want to close the uh, the avenues in which they got into the environment, or they want to get rid of the back doors that the threat actor may have deployed within there. So you know, time is of the essence, and. You, 
you definitely have to um, to try your best to understand as much about the compromise as possible within the time frame that the attackers give you. Now, it's pretty common for us to find that threat actors will give about maybe three days or five days or maybe maybe a week to either pay the ransom or to comply with whatever demands that they're asking for. Five days or a week isn't really enough time to actually thoroughly investigate a fairly com- uh, complex breach. And so you, you got to understand that you're probably not going to get all the answers that you want, but uh, but ideally you should hopefully be able to close the doors uh, in which the threat actor is using to get access to the environment. When you're dealing with a situation where the bad guys are actually stealing data and extorting the business to release that information on the Internet, where they're asking for some monetary amount or something else, you, you got to understand that the data was already stolen and the probability of the threat actor releasing the information is, is certainly a lot higher and so even if you do pay them or if you comply with their demands, the data could always go out. Uh, there's really no guarantees. You're, you're not going to get a certificate of destruction from the threat actor indicating that the, you know, the data has been uh, destroyed once um, you know, the, uh, the extortion demand has been met. And I guess there's no guarantees also that if a ransom is paid, for example, that they may not publicly release it, but there is the possibility that they'll just sell it on the underground and the organization is not going to have any idea if they've done that. That's right. Yeah. Or you know, they could release it under the same hacking group name that they actually used to, to break into the organization the first time. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it's kind of a bad situation for the victim when, the, when that happens. And, you know, the one thing that there is some honor amongst thieves and threat actors um, tend to not want to get paid a ransom or an extortion demand. Um, and then release the data under their, you know, the same hacking group name, because then what happens is the the next time they break into an organization, um, the victim may not actually pay because they assume that the data is going to get released anyway. Um, so one thing that we've actually seen some threat actors do is release the information in the underground forums under other hacking group names, um, so that you know, it, that it appears that it's a different group or a different individual that's releasing the data at a later point in time. But you know, we've, we've done quite a bit of analysis and we've been able to connect um, you know, some of the, the, the data leakage uh, to threat actors that, uh, that have been paid by the, uh, the victims. That's really interesting. So a lot of uh, obfuscation and intentional confusion, which I guess it makes it a lot harder for companies to figure out what to do. Yeah, that's right. In the report, there's also an interesting line. It says, consider all options when asked to pay a ransom. Understand that paying the ransom may be the right option in some scenarios. Now, Mandiant has, has a good understanding of this and knows that a lot of organizations have just opted to pay to make the attackers go away. And that's been, I guess, a strategy to deal with it. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, look, the, the general theme that security professionals will repeatedly say is you never give in to extortion demands. You don't pay ransoms. You don't negotiate with terrorists. And the, the reality is when you've lost materially sensitive data that has the ability to impact the way you do business, or maybe even impact the the existence of an organization, you start to consider various options. And it's actually fairly common for us to see victims pay or given to the extortion demands that uh, the threat actors impose upon them, um, given the, the level of access and the level of data that the threat actors have had from the organization. We like our clients to consider all options, and you know, paying the ransom isn't always the right thing to do. If you can get around paying it by you know, either recovering your data from tape backups or you know, kicking the attacker out of the environment before they have the ability to steal materially sensitive data, that's obviously the best option. But in many situations where we've seen 
threat actors really having access to our clients' environments and, and having access to materially sensitive data where the victim hadn't given into the extortion demand, we have seen the threat actors release that information in a, in a very public, very embarrassing way to our clients. And, you know, it was a very challenging situation for our, our clients to have to live through that. So, you know, the reality is there are some organizations, or rather many organizations, that find themselves in a situation where they decide to give into the extortion demands, cross their fingers, and they, they really hope that the threat actor agrees to do what they uh, say they're going to do, um, whether that's deleting the data or you know, not releasing it or you know, uh, leaving the organization alone. And, and quite honestly, the, the victims um, would, would rather the threat actor focus on somebody else than you know, repeatedly going after the, the victim themselves. So it's, not, it's never a good situation to be in, but um, you have to consider all options when, you come, when it comes down to it. Yeah. And I guess that comes around to how do you avoid this whole mess in the first place? And a lot of security experts advise that, you know, you have to be doing backups. You have to have those backups segmented in a way that an attacker cannot get to them. But a lot of experts are also saying that there are very few organizations that actually sort of do this well. Do you think there's a rising sort of consciousness of the need to do this? Or do you think a lot of organizations kind of do this sort of cost-benefit analysis and say that investment might be too much now, but it also might be a decision that they regret further down the line? We could spend an infinite amount of time and energy and money on security. And the reality is you've got to strike the right balance between considering business and IT operations and spending the right amount of time and focus on security. You brought up a good point about backups. Now, the reality is most organizations have some backup uh, process in place where they, they back up key infrastructure. It may not be on the best um, you know, frequency that, um, that they'd like, uh, but the reality is most organizations have some kind of backup process in place. What we tend to find is that most organizations don't segment their backup environments from the rest of the corporate environment so that when a threat actor does compromise an environment, it's usually a trivial process to get access to the backup infrastructure. And what we've seen in a number of situations is that the threat actor has gained access to the backup environment, has actually intentionally destroyed the, the backup data, whether that's encrypting it or actually deleting it, so zeroing it out um, on the disk so that um, they'd have to rely on offline backup in order to get back online. And that that process usually keeps organizations offline for you know, for days or weeks, and in some situations, months. Most organizations, uh, although they have a Sarbanes-Oxley control to test their uh, offline backup media, uh, a lot of times they don't actually anticipate ever really needing to go back to um, their offline backup media, whether it's tape or, or, or other disks. And so uh, that, that certainly does create a problem. You know, we, we always encourage our clients to also really try to learn from uh, other victims and, and you know, conduct ethical hackings and, and, and red teaming exercises and one of the things we, we tend to find is that a lot of organizations will conduct penetration tests, but they put in a lot of restrictions uh, and limitations around what the pen testers could actually do. So they say, hey, you, you can pen test our environment, but you can't test during normal business hours, or you can't test these IP address ranges, or you can't actually exploit the vulnerabilities that you identify. And, and the problem is, it creates so many limitations on what the pen testers could actually do that they don't actually break into the organization. And the organization ends up reporting to their executive leadership team and their board of directors that you know, they engaged company X to try to break into their network. They weren't able to break in. And so it creates this perception that their environment was, was really locked down. But the reality is, is that uh, you know, there were so many limitations on what the testers could actually do that they couldn't really emulate what the bad guys are doing. 
And so we, we really encourage our clients to, to go through real-world um, threat simulations and, and try to emulate the, the same attacks that the bad guys are doing. So for those organizations that do spear phishing testing and to see how many people click on malicious links that get sent to them via email, look, that's I think that's an important metric to understand. But what I'd like to do is I like to see how far can the tester actually go. So if somebody receives an email with a malicious link or a malicious attachment, by opening up that attachment or clicking on that link, would that allow the pen testers to actually get access to the crown jewels and to the organization and, and, and try to simulate whether or not that could happen and, and try to determine whether or not the, the defensive capabilities of the company could actually detect that. And um, you know, when you go through these exercises a couple of times, um, you, you figure out things that need to be fixed to help improve the overall security posture. So I think that's be- between protecting backups and actually going through real-world um, penetration testing or red team simulations, that's a, a really good way to identify the weaknesses and, and, and shore up their security postures. Yeah, what's the reason why uh, some organizations opt to limit the scope of a penetration test like that? Yeah, yeah there's uh, there's various reasons. Um, probably the most common reason is because they, they feel that uh, the um, assets that live within certain IP address ranges um, uh, are so business critical that if they went offline, that would have uh, a real impact to the business. And in other situations, people feel that the assets are, are not critical and are not really relevant to their core business operations. And so it's irrelevant to test that. And, and, and actually, in, in both situations, um, yeah, I'm not sure that I really agree with the argument. Um, in the first scenario, the reality is the bad guys are testing environments at any point in time. They're not waiting for change control windows. They're not waiting for approvals to test. When when infrastructure and assets are sitting on the internet, it's fair game for anybody to to poke at it. Uh, and so the, the whole argument around the assets being too critical, it's not really a, a uh, legitimate concern, particularly, again, when you're dealing with internet-facing infrastructure. And um, when you're dealing with um, assets that are considered to be irrelevant or not, uh, not very important, you know, it's very common for us to see bad guys breaking into organizations because they first broke into the uh, not-so-critical asset, and then from there moved laterally, uh, escalated privileges, and moved to environments that were critical, that had critical data. And so, and I think it's important to assess those uh, those systems as well. Yes, absolutely. I was going to say if uh, if they believe that the assets are that critical, that's precisely the reason why you'd want to ensure that they're you know not reachable. Yep, definitely. Great. Okay, Charles. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Good talking to you, Jeremy. I'm Jeremy Kirk with Information Security Media Group.